You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. What, what Jesus first encounters is more of a, a lighter beating because we see that he's still capable of having conversation with Pilate later in, in these 16 verses. Some of the other gospels seem to allude to the, the more severe beating happening after some of this conversation. So it's possible that Jesus went through multiple beatings as his suffering begins. Um, but we do know that eventually uh, the ultimate result of this scourging is a pretty severe beating that potentially puts him in, in position where he's unrecognizable, according to extra biblical sources, as far as what would have been done to his body. In Isaiah chapter 52, um, a passage that's, that's applied from the Old Testament into the New Testament about Jesus, it says in Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verses 13 through 15, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And so we certainly see Jesus's wisdom. What we're seeing here now is that the suffering that he endures makes him unrecognizable, even as a human being, potentially. And so um, it's that backdrop. And again, some of us have the visuals that we've seen in, in movies, but it's in that backdrop that I want you to understand three truths about salvation. Um, the first one being the, the suffering of Jesus reveals the curse of sin being placed upon him. Um, his suffering reveals the curse of sin being placed upon him. I think there's a lot of symbolism there in the crown of thorns uh, being utilized as this uh, piece of mockery about him being touted as the Jewish king. Um, because we know from Genesis chapter 3 that it's thorns and bristles that are a result of sin, right? That because of Adam and Eve's choice, part of the curse that we now endure uh, with sin is that um, the the land that we're supposed to show dominion over uh, rebels against us, right? And it rebels against us with thorns and thistles. Yesterday, uh, I had some time to, to start working on cleaning up our yard from, from winter. Um, and there were multiple times where I was poking my hands uh, as I was cleaning up uh, weeds that had thorns on them, uh, pulling out bristles from some of our bushes and, and such. And so it's a reminder to us, uh, even when we clean our yards, that we are tasked to take dominion over this earth and the, the earth rebels against us, right? Uh, rebels against us through thorns and thistles. And we see Jesus as king, as this suffering king, being, ha uh, being put in a position where this crown of thorns is placed upon his head. Um, and, and it should be a reminder to us that this is more than just a mere human dying, right? That the curse of sin is being placed upon him. Secondly, we see uh, Jesus' suffering reveals the wickedness of sin, our inability to please God, and the absolute need for him as our sacrifice. Now, where do we get that? The fact that Jesus is having to go through this is an indicator to us that there's no other way for salvation to happen, right? What an injustice for God to put his son through this if good works could get us to heaven, right? Um, so the fact that Jesus goes through such suffering ought to be an indicator to us that sin is absolutely wicked, right? That we have an inability to please God and that he is absolutely devoted 
to carrying out his promises. Um, that, that this is how it happens for us to be saved, that Jesus is our sacrifice and that sin is wicked and we can't fix it on our own. And the only way for it to be fixed is for Jesus to suffer in our place. And then number three, Jesus' suffering reveals the grace of God in saving us and the certainty of future acceptance, right? The fact that, that God would graciously do this, that he would, he would graciously suffer on our behalf, um, guarantees us that he's going to follow this through by keeping all of his promises, uh, that our future acceptance is guaranteed. Because what we see when, when Pilate says, behold the man, what we are seeing here is a man who is far more than a man. Uh, but he is a perfect man who can be our ultimate sacrifice. And so promises that God makes about uh, saving us and keeping us saved and, and making us acceptable for, before him on the day that Jesus comes back, uh, we have great confidence that those things are going to happen because of the suffering that Jesus endured. All right. I want us to jump in now and look at um, three application points as we typically have uh, for each week. Um, and so we're going to do that. Uh, by looking at the text, the first thing that I want us to see is that we need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who made himself man. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who made himself man. For our kids, Jesus is God and he became man. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who made himself man. What we see here in the text is that once Pilate has declared him to be innocent, the, the Jews revolt against that and say, look, we don't want him back. Back in the end of chapter 18, they decide they want Barabbas released instead of Jesus. And so Pilate's response is to punish Jesus, to, to have him flogged. The soldiers step in and, and probably exaggerate what the intention was. They start to have way too much fun with it. But when he's given back to Pilate, um, it says that he brings them out, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Eventually it comes back to the fact that they don't want him, they want him crucified, and they say in verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, all through these 16 verses, there's all kinds of irony here, uh, where, where you're just kind of left going, what a, what a weird way for everybody to be understanding these events. And so I'm going to show you some of the irony that we see in this passage. The first piece would be the Jews believe that Jesus is a man who is trying to make himself the son of God, right? That's what they're, that's what they're enraged about, is that we have a man who's trying to make himself the son of God. Well, it's ironic because the truth is, is that Jesus is the son of God who has made himself man, Right? And he's not trying to make himself man. He was successful in doing so. And that's where Philippians chapter 2 is such an important passage in our understanding of just a, a Christology of, of Jesus, that he is the son of God and he is eternally the son of God. And then what I've shown you before in the Greek is that he became man, right? So Jesus is eternal. He existed before the creative time. Uh, always dwelling with the Trinity, really reveals himself and makes himself known in the incarnation, right? And so he becomes man, takes on the human form. And then we said that the original language indicates to us 
that he will always be man moving forward now. So the son of God, who wasn't always man, became man and now will remain the God man forever. And so the, the irony here is that the Jews believe that he came into creation, he came into being through Mary's womb, grows up and now has this messianic complex where he's trying to make himself the son of God and gather this following. And they've, they've completely reversed what has happened, right? It's the son of God who has made himself man. There's more irony here in that Pilate scourges a man who he has pronounced as innocent, right? He says, behold the man, right? The one who I find innocent. And yet this innocent man that he parades in front of the Jewish people is a man who has been beaten and would have shown signs of that beating. He's a man wearing a crown of thorns, arrayed in purple as a mockery, right? And somehow Pilate is confused as to why the people won't take him back, why they won't believe that Pilate thinks that he's innocent, right? Pilate is, is using his leadership in a poor way, and we'll, we'll see that later. Um, but he has scourged the man who he says is innocent, which shows himself to be a poor leader. If he really believes Jesus is innocent, then he deserves no punishment. Right. But what we want to see as believers is that we want to believe. And if you're not a believer to believe that Jesus is the son of God who made himself man, Pilate tells us to behold the man. And I want to give you two things to behold in this passage. Number one, Jesus is the innocent son of God. We've been saying that now for several weeks. He is the innocent son of God. He is declared innocent by Pilate the one who was tasked to examine him and to try him on three different occasions, Pilate declares him to be not guilty, right? At the end of chapter 18 and then twice here in this passage, three times total, he is declared to the crowd to be innocent, not guilty. It reaffirms to us what we already believe about Jesus, but this is the narrative piece that, that reaffirms that as other passages already teach us, that he is an innocent without sin, son of God. And then secondly, we see his submission as the son of God, right? He is the submitted son of God. We see him suffering well and leaving us an example to follow. So not only is he innocent, but he is a submitted son of God. He fulfills scripture in Isaiah chapter 53, verse seven, uh, this messianic passage that talks about Jesus keeping his mouth closed, keeping his mouth shut in his suffering. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that this serves as an example to us in how we are to suffer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer 
of your souls. Peter's saying, look, Jesus died so that you could follow his example. Jesus died enabling you now to suffer the way that he suffered, right? To suffer in such a way where we keep our mouths shut. We don't fight our circumstances. We suffer in such a way where we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, right? And that's where having this mindset, this framework that says all authority is in heaven, any authority that exists on earth comes from heaven and is in submission to that authority. So at the end of the day, God's calling all the shots, right? God remains completely in control. His supremacy reigns supreme, right? Um, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? Jesus left us the example of that. He's fully trusting the fact that this is the cup that God would have him drink. These are the circumstances that God has ordained for him. And he's going to weather that storm. Right? He's going to keep his mouth shut. He's going to remain obedient. He's going to do good. Right? We talked about him, him even being mindful of Malchus's ear lying on the ground. Right? Doing good suffering well, not fighting his circumstances. Believe that Jesus is the son of God who made himself man. He's the innocent son of God. He's the submitted son of God. He has left us an example. So we need to believe that he's the son of God who made himself man. And then we need to follow after him. We need to follow after him with the way that we live our lives. All right. Number two, remember that Jesus is king and all other authority is delegated authority. Jesus is king, and all other authority is delegated authority. There's some more irony that we see in this passage. Um, before we get to that for our kids, Jesus is the king over all other kings. Right? He's the king over all other kings. He reigns supreme. All other authorities answer to him. We'll see the first piece of irony in this section. Uh, Pilate is trying to downplay Jesus's kingship. The Jews are rejecting his kingship, yet the passage keeps referencing Jesus as a king, right? Um, the way this is all playing out is that really the thing that keeps coming through all of this is that Jesus is, is a king, right? He's a suffering king, but he's a king nonetheless. And even when they go to crucify him in their mockery, they declare, here's the king of the Jews in multiple languages, which is another nod to the gospel. The gospel isn't just for the Jews, right? It's not just written in Hebrew, right? It's written in multiple languages so that those who are witnessing the crucifixion have the gospel on display that here's Jesus, the Messiah, suffering in your place. And yet all through this passage, everybody's trying to downplay it, reject it, get rid of it. And yet the only thing that come, really comes through in the passage is that he's a king. He's repeatedly referenced as king. He's dressed up and presented as a suffering king. Next piece of irony here is that the Jews choose a king, Caesar, who keeps them in bondage versus a king who can set them free. At the end of the passage, the Jews are saying, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want him. Pilate's like, you really want me to crucify your king? Chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, we saw earlier that the Jews told Jesus they weren't in bondage to anybody, that they refused to believe that Caesar had control over them. But when it comes down to it, they would rather be under submission to Caesar 
than in submission to Jesus. The irony is that they're choosing a king who keeps them in bondage versus a king who sets us free, right? Now, we know even in our freedom that comes from following Jesus, there's a submission as a slave to righteousness that the scriptures talk about, right? But at the end of the day, we're, we're submitted to somebody or something. Um, and the Jews here are saying, you know what? We'd rather be slaves to Caesar, slaves to um, the, the current structure versus following this man, Jesus. What they're ultimately doing is they're choosing slavery to sin over uh, slavery to righteousness through salvation. Um, but there's irony there that they choose a king who keeps them in bondage versus the king who sets them free. Another piece here is that on the day the Jews celebrate their freedom from the king of Egypt, they crucify the king who can give them eternal freedom, right? The, John is very clear to point out that this is, this is in the preparation of the Passover, the sixth hour, uh, most likely when the priests begin to kill Passover lambs, they are declaring that the Lamb of God be crucified. Um, in celebration of being set free from Egypt, they are choosing to remain in their sins. They want to crucify the king who can give them eternal freedom. Remember, Jesus is king and all other authority is delegated authority. Let's see this in the passage. Number one, delegated power is to be used, but it's not absolute power. Delegated power is to be used, but it's not absolute power. Human authority is granted by and submitted to heavenly power. Romans 13.1 talks about how all kings and all authorities are ordained by God. And we certainly see this in the conversation uh, between Pilate and Jesus, right? That um, ultimately Pilate doesn't really possess the power that he thinks, um, that he has no, tr no true power, right? So going back to our text, we saw that Jesus is flogged. He's beaten. Pilate comes back and says, here's your king. <clears throat> the people say, look, we don't want him. Crucify him. Pilate's kind of fed up with it and says, look, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, the problem is the Jews don't have the authority to be able to do this type of crucifixion. So it's more Pilate kind of throwing his hands up and saying, I am so frustrated that I have an innocent man here, and I can't convince you guys to take him back. The Jews answered, we have a law. Uh, if you make yourself a son of God, you deserve death. When Pilate hears this, he's even more afraid. Maybe he's afraid at the, the Jewish people and how resolute and stubborn they're going to be about this. Maybe he's fearful because the Romans believed that it was possible for the gods to take on human form, and so maybe he believes there's some truth to what's being claimed about Jesus. But it says that he entered his headquarters again, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. What's Jesus saying here? That Pilate has no true power over this event. Pilate's trying to say that I have the power to crucify you or release you, Jesus steps in and says, the results of what's going to happen here um, are going to be just as God planned for them to be. That, 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 that Pilate doesn't really have any true authority here. Now, he does have accountability for how he uses the authority that's been given to him, right? So he has no real authority, meaning that there's no independent, um, absolute authority that Pilate has to operate independently of God. 
but God has given him authority and God expects him to use it properly. And in Acts chapter two, verse 23, Peter preaching after the day of Pentecost, um, he basically talks about the accountability for those who were instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus, that they are held accountable for their actions. So Pilate is held accountable for these actions, and yet it's God who remains in control of them. Jesus is seen as the supreme king. His kingdom will not fail or become vulnerable in his death. Instead, he becomes victorious. Think about movies that you've seen or books that you've read where kingdoms have battled against other kingdoms. When the king falls, right, when the leader falls, it typically means the kingdom falls apart too. Kingdoms don't typically go on when the king has been, has been defeated. Um, or at least it's, it's, it's at best weakened. Yet Jesus is a different type of king that we've already seen, and his kingdom functions differently, or his kingdom actually gains power through his death and then resurrection. Um, and so he's a supreme king. What I love about this scene, though, um, is that it shows that he's in control, even though Pilate's the one that thinks he's in control, right? And he's showing that he's in control by choosing to not even answer this question that Pilate asks, right? And it's a question that Pilate asks, and I think Jesus, one, chooses to not answer it because it's like, why is new truth needed when I've already answered some of your questions and you've done nothing with those answers, right? We don't need new truth if we're unwilling to act upon the revealed truth that's already been given to us, right? For most of us, we have zero, for all of us, actually, we have zero need for more revelation from God because we're still trying to figure out how to act and respond to the revelation he's already given to us, right? So I think Pilate asked this question, and Jesus is like, you know what? I'm not even going to answer this because I've already answered some questions for you, and you've done nothing. You've responded at, uh, with, with nothing from my previous answers. But just the fact that Jesus chooses to not answer, to me, really shows who's in authority here. Um, I love, I used to love growing up, I still love movies about um, the Vietnam War. I love the stories of these soldiers who will go back to Vietnam and rescue uh, POWs that were left behind, right? And so I've watched a lot of these movies over the years. Uh, big fan of Rambo um, and, and those movies from the 80s. And it seems like in every one of these Vietnam movies, the soldier gets captured at some point, right? And he's kind of strung up and whether it's the Vietnamese general or the Russian general or somebody comes into the room and starts making threats. And the threats are always combined with questions, right? Like, who are you? What's your name? Who sent you? What are you doing here? How many people are with you? Right? And a lot of times you see those soldiers, stone cold, not going to answer. Rambo's notorious for this, right? And you, the audience, are watching the movie and you know what's going to happen and you're like, man, General thinks he's in control right here, asking all the questions, but Rambo is showing that he's actually in control because he's not answering anything. And Rambo knows he's about to go Rambo on this general and bust out of there, right? So when I read this, like, I can't help but think of that type of scene where Jesus looks like he's defeated, right? Much like a Rambo who's been beaten and whipped and is strung up and, and is being threatened with his life, right? Like, if you don't give me these answers, I have the authority to kill you or release you. And I just picture Jesus looking at him stone cold like Rambo in those movies. I'm not going to answer you. And I don't have to answer you 
because I'm in control in this situation. I'm in control of this setting. And I've been in those type of settings as a principal where I'm trying to get a student to, to answer questions for me. And it feels like, hey, who's in control here? Like, why are you not answering my questions? Right. And so I know Pilot probably starts to panic here thinking, whoa, 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 I'm in control. I have the ability to crucify you or to let you go. And that's where Jesus does respond and says, no, you don't. You don't have any authority unless my father gives it to you. Your only authority comes from heaven. Right. He shows that he's in control in this situation. Delegated power, it's to be used. God expects rulers and authorities to use their power, but ultimately it's not absolute power, and Pilate is not in control of this situation. Number two, God's law is not a contradictory law. God's law is not a contradictory law. God's law affirms Jesus as the long-awaited king. Think about the irony that's being used here. The Jews are appealing to God's law. They're appealing to God's law. Most likely, um, let me double check this to make sure I give it right to you. I think it's Leviticus chapter 24. All right, so Leviticus chapter 24, um, verses 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Right, So they try to use that and say, here's why we want Jesus crucified, because he's blasphemous. He's claiming to be God. They're using the law that points to Jesus to condemn him. Right? God's law is not a contradictory law. It affirms Jesus as the Messiah. All right? And then lastly, number three, when you know what is right, do it no matter the cost. When you know what is right, do it no matter the cost. For our kids, always do the next right thing you've seen Frozen 2, there's a little nod to Frozen 2 there, right? So I did get a Frozen 2 reference in finally. Because I think it's a great quote, right? Like when you don't know what to do next, when you don't know what the future is, always do the next right thing. And what you see in this passage is that Pilate knows what the next right thing to do is. He's innocent. He needs to be let go. But the irony here is that Pilate acts in a way to hang on to power, but the whole passage is about the lack of power that he has, right? He's clinging to something that he doesn't even have because that's ultimately what's behind all this. Pilate doesn't want to lose his power, and the Jews know that, so they keep threatening him, right? They threaten him that, oh, if you don't do this, you're not a friend of Caesar, and we're going to tell Caesar, and Caesar's going to remove you from your position. If we, if we uprise and if we riot... Rome's going to say, oh, Pilate's not a good leader, and you're going to lose your authority, right? Pilate is trying to hang on to power, but it's power that he doesn't even have, right? We've already seen that it's God-ordained power. His power is limited by what God allows, but even think about from the human standpoint. You read this passage, and you don't ever think Pilate's in control. <clears throat> if anything, it feels like the Jewish people are playing some control here, right? Because it keeps talking about how... <coughs> Pilate wants to let Jesus go, but he can't figure out how to do it. Even after he talks to them, him the second time and Jesus tells him about his authority, look what it says. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, right? The man with the power is trying to let Jesus go, but he's having to try to let Jesus go because he doesn't know how to use his power. If you release this man, the people cried out, you're not Caesar's friend. He's crippled by the fear of man. He keeps trying to release him, but he can't find a way to do it and still hang on to what he thinks is his own power. 
Number one here, do right even if your loyalty is questioned. Do right even if your loyalty is questioned. What do they say? Pilate, if you don't do this, you're not really a friend of Caesar because Caesar's supposed to be king, not Jesus, right? Do right even if your loyalty is questioned. The Jews want to persuade Pilate based on his desire to be accepted in Rome. The Chinese teacher Confucius says that cowardice is to know what is right and to not do it. And that's certainly what we see here from Pilate. He knows what's right, chooses not to do it. He is a picture of what it looks like to be a coward. We have a responsibility to do right even if your loyalty is questioned. Do right even if your loyalty is questioned. Number two, do right even if your position is threatened. Do right even if your position is threatened. Pilate does not want to lose the power he has worked so hard to gain. But Pilate saw Jesus as innocent, but he wasn't willing to let him go. He wasn't willing to lose his life over it, right? And that's what Jesus calls us to. He says, if you want to follow me, if you want to believe in me, if you want to see me for who I am, it it may cost you your life. And it certainly may cost you your job. It may cost you the riches of this world. It may cost you material things. But if you truly believe, you'll follow me. And Pilate's kind of caught in that middle ground where he sees Jesus. He's sympathetic towards Jesus. Maybe even is starting to affirm some of what Jesus says. But at the end of the day, he's not willing to give up his life. He's not willing to give up his life to follow him. The sympathy piece is not enough to save him. Now, we're put in positions all the time where we need to choose to do right, even if our loyalty is questioned, or even if our position is threatened. Man, I think direct application this week, Lauren and I have had conversations about how to be submitted to the government and what the government's asking us to do right now with our social distancing and turning down play dates and birthday parties and social gatherings that some of our friends are asking us to participate in. And I think things have changed so much even from last week, right? Like last week I was telling you, hey, connect and socialize as you're comfortable, right? Because last, last week's stance, the government was saying, hey, we don't want more than 50 people getting together. And that got reduced very quickly down to 10. And so Lauren and I have had questions about how do we navigate through this? Because what we don't want, we don't want our loyalty question. We don't want our love for our friends question. Right. And so we've had to talk through how do we submit to the government and do what's right, even if it maybe hurts some people's feelings. Right. There may be times where you have to do what's right because, you know, it's right and it may cost you your job. Right. We've had people in our church who have done the right thing, who have stood for integrity and it's cost them their job before. Um, When you know what's right, do what's right, even if it's costly. Pilate is an example of someone who didn't choose to do that, and we need to be the opposite, all right? So so looking back, humans enjoy delegated authority, but supreme authority lies in heaven, giving us reason to trust God, to do what's right, even when we see the the government doing evil. We keep trusting that everything's going to work out because God's in control, and we can believe him, and we can believe that he's going to use the evil actions for his purposes. So believe that he's the son of God who made himself man. Remember that he's king over all authority. And then number three, when you know what's right, do it no matter the cost. Let's look at some application points. 
application for this week. Oh, go back. There we go. Uh, number one, I want you to spend some time rejoicing over your salvation this week, praising God that we are saved from the sin virus, right? We're, 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 we're seeing the frailty of life around us. Uh, we're seeing um, our humanity and our uh, finiteness, I think, um, the fact that these bodies aren't eternal. And we're seeing people um, suffering through uh, this time with the coronavirus. We can rejoice over salvation and rejoice that we've been saved from a bigger problem, right? There is a much bigger problem than a sickness, and that's a sin problem. And we have been saved from that because of a suffering king who kept his mouth shut, drank the cup that his father gave him, right? Left us an example of what it looks like to suffer well. Rejoice over your salvation this week. You're going to have plenty of downtime to do so. Be thankful. In the midst of being tempted to be fearful about a sickness, be thankful that the greatest sickness— the one that could condemn us for eternity, we've been set free from, right? We've been healed from. Number two, pray for our delegated authorities today and this week, but keep trusting in the true king who reigns supreme, right? Pray for our delegated authorities because they do have power that's been given to them by God. They'll be held accountable for how they choose to use it. And I think Yvonne posted that there's a special time of prayer today, even from this noon to one hour. So we'll, we'll pray in closing today, uh, utilizing that theme. Well, let me encourage you to pray as a family, not only today, but throughout this week. Pray for our delegated authorities. Pray for our president. Pray for those who are advising our president, that, that, that wisdom would come down from them, uh, come down to them from above. I even was praying this week. You know, I said, Lord, I don't know how many of these individuals who are calling the shots are Christians. So I don't know how many of them are praying to you. I don't know how many of them are promised your wisdom. But what I do know is that there are Christians in that arena that have the ability to speak and influence those who maybe aren't Christians. And so I prayed specifically that God would bring wisdom down to those Christians who are in that arena and give them a voice to be heard by our delegated authorities, right? That They would act in wisdom that comes directly from God. So pray for our delegated authorities, uh, but keep trusting in the true King who reigns supreme. And number three, do what's right. And I'm going to challenge you to do what's right in regards to what our government's asking us to do, right? Listen to our delegated authorities. They're not trying to, they're not trying to do evil, right? They're trying to do good. I believe their heart is right in the things that they're asking us to do. Again, I've shared with you, in no way do I think us not meeting today is an attack on our religion or our faith, right? I believe that it is being done in such a way where our government wants what is good for the overall population. And I believe that we as Christians need to be out and be the forefront of the example of that. That we need to be the forefront example of what it looks like to be obedient to the government when the government is seeking to do good and right. So let me encourage you to do that this week, right? Listen to our delegated authorities um, and, and submit ourselves to them as much as we can, right? Uh, to take, to make choices and decisions that would honor our government. For our family worship questions this week, uh, what are some specific ways that we can pray during this time of quarantine? Um, what are some things that we can teach our kids from a pray, from a praying standpoint, a prayer request standpoint? Specific ways that we can pray during this time of quarantine, praying both for our delegated leaders, praying for ourselves to grow, for our faith to be strengthened during this time. And then number two, what are some ways we can serve those in need from a healthy distance? Um, we're going to try to make you aware of, of ways that we can serve uh, within this community. Um, Elizabeth Flowers has, has volunteered to be our point person to help try to gather some different opportunities 
Uh, we want to do that. We want to do that in a way that protects our own selves, uh, but we also want to be able to extend ourselves if we can to help those that may be in need during this time. So uh, talk about that some as a family even, uh, people in your neighborhood, people that you're connected with. What are some ways that you can serve those in need um, from a healthy distance this week? All right. Um, hopefully everybody's still with us. I'm going to pray for us. And then I think we're going to have some uh, just time at the end to uh, spend some time fellowshipping once again. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for uh, just the chance to come together today, even though it's not um, in a face-to-face format like we would prefer. Um, God, we are very thankful that we can gather uh, even remotely this morning and, and see each other's faces, hear each other's voices, uh, that we can still gather around your word. Um, God, we never want this to become a substitute for the real thing. So God, I pray that you would create a deepy, a deepening uh, longing uh, for us to be together once again. Um, God, I pray that it would uh, even challenge us to prioritize Sunday gatherings moving forward when maybe at times we've been tempted to allow other things to pull us away because we can always go next Sunday. We'll always be able to gather next week so we can miss this Sunday for this. God, what this is teaching us is that we're not promised to be able to gather next Sunday. Um, and so, God, I pray that even coming out of this, there would be a renewed value based on um, our attendance and gathering, um, that we would see the value of it and never take it for granted. Um, God, we do pray for our leaders today, those that are laboring hard to make decisions that are for the good of the people. Lord, I know that it's a challenging time. I know that there's so much information being shared that it's probably hard to process even what the the, the, the right next thing to do is. Um but God, I pray that you would surround our leaders with, with Christian influences. Those who are crying out to you, those who are asking for your wisdom, God, I pray that you would grant them that wisdom and that you would give them a voice to be heard. Um, Lord, that our president and those who are his closest advisors, God, that they would hear wisdom from you that comes directly from you. God, help them to see that their authority is only delegated and that you're the supreme authority. God, help us to be reminded of that. That as we see our, our leaders making decisions, maybe some we agree with, some we don't agree with, God, help us not to put our trust in our leaders' abilities to make decisions. Help us to remember that you are the supreme king, that the only authorities that have been given have been given by you. Um, Lord, I pray that we would get a, a better glimpse of you as we seek to behold you uh, during our study of the crucifixion and the resurrection. God, we thank you for sending your son as, a, as an innocent submissive, obedient man who could stand in our place. We thank you for Jesus this morning. We thank you that we can we can gather and celebrate because we have been saved from our greatest problem. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Give us wisdom this week to know how to do right, to know how to serve with opportunities that come our way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.